Hey everybody, welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at here is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Angie Backus, another one of your hosts. So first and foremost, Angie, I'd like to, uh, I think I'd like to start with uh, Happy New Year. Yeah. And thank people for sticking with us into 2020. Yeah, Happy New Year. It's 2020 now. Right. And what a, what a new year so far. Uh, actually, to that end, I think I'd like to depart from our kind of usual examination of ideas and thriving and, and, and that tack and really look at something that we don't often do is to look at current affairs. I think uh, whatever is happening for us in this new year uh, after uh, this kind of dust up with Iran and the, the assassination of their general uh, Soleimani it feels to me like um, we'd be remiss to, to not address it or to not talk about it or, you know, I don't mean, kind of talk about thriving without talking about the craziness with which this uh, this new year started. Yeah, I think we kind of, yeah, we got blasted into this. And I think you're right. If we miss this opportunity, um, it sounds, it seems like we would be remiss. This is kind of sort of your wheelhouse too a little bit, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, so I'm... Uh, you know, my I'm I'm no Iranian expert, right? I'm no expert on Iran. You're uh, you are my Iranian expert, just so you know. <laughs> I'm always asking the questions of uh, yeah, I kind of see you as the the expert, but yeah. I, mean, I don't know, too I, I, many, know I don't know any. I know Iranian some stuff about experts. Iran. Yeah, uh, I know way more about one of these uh, kind of Iranian affiliates, uh, Hezbollah, uh, which uh, have written lots and lots of papers on Hezbollah. Um, which gives me at least some insight in, into the history of the connection between those two and also to uh, the kind of Shiite, uh, the Shiite dilemma and mm-hmm. Shiite politics and, um, you know, Shiite thinking in the region. And, and eventually I, I'd like to at least shine some light on to what it means to be um, what it means to be embroiled with with an entity that considers itself like a, a Shiite uh, you know, a Shiite state. Yeah, so this might be a good combo here because um, I know very little. Um, admittedly, I know very little about this um, this type of situation. I think you know quite a bit. Um, and so maybe I can ask the questions that maybe those that may not quite know very much. Maybe I'll I'll get to some of those things. In theory, that's, that's what we're here for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, these two positions that... You know, so in the in the rhetoric and in the examination of what we've heard uh, in the last couple of days, um, you know, after the assassination of this Iranian general, uh, was the Republicans sort of taking you know one um, defensive position by defensive, I mean, defending um, the decisions of the Trump administration, and the Democrats really asking a different type of question 
about uh, the roadmap forward. And it sort of looked like the Democrats were, were saying, while, I mean, in, in, in short, right, while there are no Americans that are going to mourn for the death of Soleimani, it's also important to have a clear action plan, a clear strategy moving forward in terms of how the United States is going to deal with the retaliation of Iran. And not to have that, not to do so, not to be thinking in that way is impetuous. And I think a lot of people would, would, would say, at least this is what I'm hearing from the Democrats, mm-hmm. uh, is that undertaking this, this type of action, this type of assassination, uh, where two other presidents certainly had the opportunity and passed on it, uh, is in fact impetuous and um, it, it doesn't bode well for uh, our own future moving forward. Um, just because the plan seems, the strategy moving forward seems like it's less than clear. Yeah, and even though we don't know the strategy, I think what you hear is um, <clears throat> what people are, are saying and what I think President Trump is saying is, don't worry, we got this. We're in the United States. We're going to be fine. Right, and I, I'm not sure if that is always going to work. Um, I mean, there's some talk about what conventional warfare is, uh, and a little bit, I think, of that plan did leak out. You know, there's certainly an expectation that Iran will retaliate in some way. Um, but I think the part that we did here is if Iran retali- retaliates, uh, then they should also be prepared for some yeah. conventional warfare, right. uh, which I think is is wrongheaded. And I think it, it misses um, it misses some of the moving it misses some of the moving pieces of how that that area that part of the world worked, which ultimately I'd like to get to. Um, what I've heard from Republican uh, sources is that you know this was an important piece on the chessboard that needed to be removed, uh, and that there were you know pending threats, imminent threats to um, to the United States uh, and to U.S. assets, to U.S. targets. Um, that would almost surely be be deadly uh, and mean the death of Americans. So many more have been, so many have already been killed. The idea is that so many more would be killed by right. this person. And that this was preventive, mm-hmm. that this was a preventive measure uh, that was necessary. And on the face of it, I think these, these two positions seem like they are in conflict, that they are, they're intractable, they can't... Um, but I'm not necessarily sure that it, it had to go this way. Uh, this these, way. these two positions, which positions are in conflict? This, this position uh, that it's important to take pieces off the quote-unquote chessboard okay. uh, to prevent imminent, you know, imminent threats to, to U.S. interests abroad um, and to U.S. lives versus this idea of uh, showing some restraint um, mm-hmm. so that we don't end up in a bigger conflagration with no clear strategy as to how to deal with Iran. Okay. Uh, and the reason I don't necessarily think that these two positions are um, kind of diametrically opposed necessarily is because if we do, in fact, have the intelligence, uh, and if we had a really good chain of intelligence and Soleimani didn't know, um, and I think you know by the fact that he was that exposed, that maybe he didn't know that the U.S. had the type of intelligence that it did, then it's also conceivable that the United States would have been able to uh, kind of cherry pick any future um, any future threats and stop them at the threat level, hmm. as opposed to um, 
you know, assassinating a, a military leader um, who is part of the Iranian government. Um, and that in and of itself, like, I, I don't have any, I mean, I think like, like most Americans, I don't necessarily have any feelings uh, for Soleimani um, and the fact that he's gone. For me, the bigger question is, how does, you know, how do Iran and the United States, uh, how are things going to play out between these two countries um, moving forward? And that to me is the, that that's the bigger question. Mm-hmm. And that's really the thing that kind of um, really unsettled me as uh, as, as the news of of uh, Soleimani's death um, kind of trickled into the to, to the news cycle. Can you explain a little bit what feels so unsettling? So it felt impetuous to me as well. Uh, there's a famous military strategist. Um, who, I mean, you know, hundreds of years ago now, but in some ways kind of, um, he, he set the, the framework for how to think about uh, military actions. Carl uh, von Clausewitz. Okay. Uh, and Clausewitzian thought says, says this, that all military actions, any war, should be the, the last resort to some political strategy that you already have. War is not the first step or a middle step or a next to the, the last step. It is the, an act of last resort mm-hmm. once you have a clear political st- strategy already mapped out. And while the United States has articulated some sense that if it comes to conventional war, the United States is prepared to do that with Iran, I haven't heard anything about the political strategy moving forward and what is the ultimate political goals that the United States are trying to achieve with this? Can you imagine what those would be? Like, do you have any hunch? No, not with a strike like this. No, I think <laughs> I think the exact opposite. It seems like there isn't a political strategy. That it really is um, sort of what you've heard articulated from from the administration. It really is about taking chess pieces off the board. It's prevention, and, right? Yeah. And for me, that that notion of taking pieces off the board is not good enough um, for a couple reasons. I think the main one for me is this. Um, one of the things that I that I think everyone anticipates is that Iran will retaliate in, a, in an asymmetrical warfare kind of way. That is to say, it's not going to um, it's not going to be a tit for tat type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Iran is the type of entity that doesn't fight that way, right? They have loads of proxies. They have other entities that kind of do their bidding, if you will. Okay. Uh, and it, it's in all of that, these other co- you know countries or other entities that are doing their bidding, that you expect, um, I think that we would expect, uh, some kind of retaliatory action. In that, though, uh, the administration ha- has articulated that if Iran does something like this, then the United States is prepared for conventional warfare. That is to say, we're going to take our troops and our guns right, and on. our planes, and we're going in. Here's what we know about conventional warfare. The time for that is done, hmm. right? Uh, the way that we think of conventional warfare, uh, the United States certainly did some of that in World War One. We certainly did some of that in World War Two, But ultimately, when it comes to asymmetric or unconventional warfare... United States is not very good at it. Um, it's not very good at it at all. Uh, it wasn't very good in the Philippines. 
Uh, you remember Korea. It wasn't very good in Korea. Uh, it wasn't very good in Vietnam. And then we had, you know, let's look at Iraq. Because I, I think Iraq actually very clearly illustrates the problem with thinking about um, conflicts in this region in, in, a, in a conventional warfare kind of way, right? Like, we're not talking about the Soviet Union. We're not talking about D-Day or, like, we're not talking about fighting Nazi Germany. Uh, although that, in some very real way, that's what the United States military is prepared to do. Mm-hmm. It's a big, lumbering superpower mm-hmm. that is trying to fight another big power. And it's not really going to play out that way. When you look at the 2003 invasion of Iraq, the U.S. military was fully prepared to deal with Saddam Hussein's Republican Guard. And we went in, and they said it would be a cakewalk. And I guess as long as you're talking about you know, Saddam Hussein's army, Iraq's army, it was a cakewalk. Mm-hmm. It took us about six weeks, and then it was mission accomplished. It was that big banner that George W. Bush had, mm-hmm. mission accomplished. Six weeks, we defeated their army. But then what happened? For the next eight years, there was a counterinsurgency that the United States was not at all prepared for. Yeah. Uh, we certainly weren't prepared for it uh, under General uh, McChrystal. And it took uh, you know, General Petraeus writing a, a field manual, it's called the Counterintelligence Field Manual, uh, really to even begin to put us in a position to start um, combating the, the, the insurgency. Um, and the United States is not prepare to fight those types of wars, and we see it all the time. I mean, Vietnam was the same thing. Um, and, and so even though I think this administration anticipates that if, if Iran retaliates, then there, there's a conventional response, I don't think that conventional response is going to go the way the United States thinks that it's going to go. So. Well, since the U.S. failed um, at that the last time, And you mentioned General Petraeus writing some new plan. Do you think that there's been any progress in how this works? Maybe we learned from our mistakes? I I certainly think that we were able to hone our strategy in Iraq. Um, Enough to start kind of, you know, pulling back troops. But I wouldn't say that I I think Iraq is stable now. Mm. Uh, I think the fact that um, Soleimani and Iran have so many vassals or have so many proxies um, in in Iraq says a lot about the stability of the country. But also, I mean, part of the the problem is that we think of, you know, we live in a country that is, despite all of our differences, despite all the racial stuff, despite all of the, you know, Republican-Democrat split, uh, we live in a country that we mostly think of America as Americans. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the most part. Mm-hmm. And we think uh, is like it's essentially a big, like you, you see the United States on a map. It's like a big U.S.-shaped country. Yeah. Well, I guess it is a U.S.-shaped country. But it's like a big, you know, block. And we're all the same inside. So then for the most part, we're unified. Yeah. I most think part. most Americans think of Americans as Americans. Yeah. And that's not the case in so many other places in the world. And part of it is because we, I think people don't understand how, how these type of ethnic states work out. You know, um, Iraq is a 60% Shiite country. A lot of those Shiites that are in Iraq, uh, they have Persian ancestry or they have Iranian ancestry, Iranian ancestry for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, right? Uh, the, the word Persian itself has its own kind of political uh, underpinnings, but um and some Iraqis even have like, you know, uh, Farsi speaking Persian accents when they speak. 
uh, in Arabic. Uh, so you have a 60% you know, Persian part of, or uh, Shiite part of the country. Um, you have a sizable Kurdish part of Iraq as well. And then you have the Sunnis, um, which Saddam Hussein certainly comes from that, that part of, mm. of, um, of Iraq. Um, and then you have the Sunnis, who are a minority, who hold a lot of power in other parts of the region, but not in Iraq. Um, but if you go in with the thinking that Iraq is just a, a clump of Iraqis, and they're all Iraqis together, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of how that part of the world works, and certainly how Iraq works, uh, or how Lebanon works, or how you know Saudi Arabia works, or any of the Gulf states. They, they, they don't work the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not allies in the same way. They, they don't even want the same things. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but part of, I think, our mistake is thinking of it that way, which is why, you know, I, we were able to start, you know, eight years, eight years later, eight years after we defeated um, Saddam Hussein, we were able to start kind of diminishing the amount of troops, the, the presence that was there. So, yeah, we've learned some things, but I think some of the more important things about, like, actually how this part of the world works, it seems like we haven't learned that lesson. Can you... Rafael, break it down a little bit of how it does work and how that might be a problem for what's occurred? So one of the things I think is important to understand is I, mean, I don't want to paint all, all Shiites with a, a single brush, um, but there is some, some, some really important kind of schemas of how they see the world, right? So... Um, the Battle of Karbala, right? So, obviously, you know I do this history thing, but I'd like to talk about the Battle of Karbala for a second. Okay. Uh, after Prophet Muhammad died, he, at some point, um, he had some grandchildren. And can you just, uh, roughly, what year was Prophet Muhammad, what, what year did he die, roughly? Yeah, I just want to Roughly, like, 1,300 years ago. Okay. So, his grandchildren, um, so, uh, Hussein... And Hassan, uh, brothers, um, they were the, the sons of his daughter and his cousin. His, his cousin married his daughter. Um, and they ended up in some conflict with uh, the, the kind of Muslim powers that had started to emerge in Syria. And they ended up going to war or a battle uh, in what is modern-day Iraq at the Battle of Karbala. Um, and they were defeated, and the way that they were defeated was Yazid, this um, this general, this leader who was out of Syria, essentially cut off their supplies. They essentially starved and starved to death, or died of thirst um, in the desert. The only reason that I mention this part of the history is because for the Shiites, the deaths of Hassan and Hussein. Um, start at the beginning of their feeling of martyrdom, right? Mm. And she had to be very connected to this part of Muhammad's family. Okay. Um, and they see themselves as the underdogs. They're willing to, I mean, like in the same way the Japanese kamikaze were like willing to just fly a plane into another plane yeah. uh, out of honor or whatever, uh, the Shiite sense of martyrdom and their willingness to engage to the death is, is that, that's a real way that they see the world. Um, even we even see this in the, in the Iran Iraq War. 
It was a rock lost probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 500, you know, like a half a million people in terms of casualties. Uh, some people estimate that the Iranians lost as many as two million, wow. one or two million. Uh, and you have a whole generation of men that are just like missing in Iran because Iranians just kept throwing men at the problem. They just kept throwing men at the problem. And there's a willingness, I think, on the part of, of that kind of Shiite mm-hmm. underdog to just say, we'll just keep going. Well, you had mentioned to me that they were throwing men out sometimes even without weapons. Sometimes even without weapons. Yeah. I mean, just people just being thrown at the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can kind of get that mentality. Right. It, it, yeah. It's an important thing to understand when you're dealing with a country like Iran is that you? Iran is not afraid. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might have a conventional response that is is planned out if Iran retaliates in whatever kind of way that you imagine they're going to retaliate, but they're not afraid, like, mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and your conventional responses, I don't think, uh, are going to do, you know, like I said before, I don't think they're going to do what you want them to do, but you also have to consider that Iran has all of these forces that are kind of spread out. Some of them are in Syria, Iran is very close to the Syrian regime, to uh, uh, al-Assad's regime, uh, who is a different type of Shiite, you know, technically. Mm-hmm. Um, they are Shiites too, but a very kind of different sort. Uh, and, you know, the, the Shiite militias that are in Iraq and, of course, Hezbollah, which is formidable, right? Hezbollah launched that 2006... Um, I don't know, conflict with Israel and where Israel is always expected to win every battle, it was unclear um, who the, you know, I mean, both sides declared victory. Mm -hmm. And for that even to be a possibility, we're not talking about the the country of Lebanon fighting the country of Israel. Hmm. We're talking about this little militia of Hezbollah going to war with with the Israeli, Mm -hmm. you know, military and it not being clear who the winner is. So Hezbollah is a force in the region that like, can't really underestimate uh and they're on one side of the map and you have iraq that's somewhere else you know uh on a different side of the map you have the houthis that are in a different part of the map and it's like iran has these these proxies that are kind of spread out in different places and i just don't know what a u.s response would i mean destroy their oil fields okay that's one thing that's being spoken of iran iran is prepared for that Mm -hmm. i mean not only have they been hungry before, not only have they had sanctions forever, um, they're underdogs. So this is the mentality that you're speaking of. So go right. ahead, they're, take they're, the oil, cut Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're matter. ready to be persecuted. Like, come at us, bro. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, uh, I don't know. It, mm-hmm. it seems to me that without a clear political strategy, this is a mistake. Mm-hmm. What would you see being one of the worst outcomes? So if I had to think about how bad it could get, I mean, from a cyber perspective, it could look like attack on uh, nuclear plants um, in the United States, attacks on dams, um, you know, electric generating dams, attacks on our electrical grid, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps maybe even attacks on on some of the moving pieces of our our food supply chain, Mm -hmm. Um, maybe the banks. Uh, all of those type of cyber attacks are certainly, you know, I think in the realm of possibility. I think in terms of, you know, ground warfare type things, I mean, I think Israel's concerned, right, 
Israel has already moved forces uh, north to the part of Syria that they're occupying, uh, the Golan Heights, um, because they expect some type of um, retaliation. Mm. Uh, and so Israel knows the score. They're like, okay, this is bad. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of oil tankers that are in the Gulf, in the Persian Gulf, uh, in, in the Indian Ocean, um, there could be heightened attacks on, on them. I think, um, you know, Iran is not super duper, um, you know, well aligned with Afghanistan, even though they they have a little bit of an ethnic overlap. There are uh, some Farsi speaking or Dari speaking people in Afghanistan who are ethnically um, kind of related to the Persians. Uh, so there could be help uh, of the Farsi, you know, to Farsi speaking people hmm. in Afghanistan. Um one of the things that is is I, I would really kind of hate the thought of is Iran helping a country like Pakistan with their um, with their nuclear program. And Pakistan already has a nuclear program, and the Pakistanis kind of came out really to decry, um, you know, the the horror of of what they see as uh, the United States assassinating, you know, a Muslim a Muslim leader. Um, and I wouldn't always necessarily expect a place like Pakistan to come out um, really, you know, uh, to protest something for the Iranians, but they have. Uh, and so I, I, would, I would dread the idea that Iran might help, you know, a country like, like Pakistan with their nuclear, with their nuclear huh. technology, uh, because then that automatically brings India into it. Right? India and Pakistan, they're kind of mortal enemies they both have nuclear programs that are not like very good they both have bombs but neither uh, has a missile uh, but the idea that you know like what if Iran helped Pakistan with their nuclear program mm-hmm. and then what does India do after that and then <laughs> India already has its own crisis now and then um, and so the potential for for this to even spread out of the region into the subcontinent uh, that's real too yeah I think your analogy and I think I've heard it um, on the news, but this like this moving of these chess pieces—it's so real. As I'm hearing you talk, I'm kind of hearing what needs to be, what needs to happen. Is there's a move, and then there's another move, and then there's another move, right? So it's this big rippling effect. Which is why I mean, which is why you have to have a political strategy. I mean, to 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 account for all the the pieces that could possibly move, you you simply can't do it. I mean, for as many times, even when when the United States was, was trying to catch Osama bin Laden, uh, for as many times, whether it was Tora Bora or this place in Afghanistan or this place in Somalia, whatever, like for every, all of our efforts and all of our intelligence, he was so hard to catch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, eventually it took the United States lying to the government of Pakistan, mm-hmm. secretly going into Abbottabad in order to doing it and not telling you know, um, the Pakistani intelligence and not telling Pakistani, you know, military or the government. Uh, Because there are so many pieces that are constantly moving around. You simply can't account for them. Yeah, so I know that you're not a fortune teller and you don't have, you know, the sense of how all of this is working, but what do you think could be the possibility that maybe Trump does have a strategy? Maybe he is thinking ahead. What are your thoughts? I, I can't in any kind of conscionable way think that this strategy 
I'll tell you how I think of this strategy, okay. right? Because there are, there are always these forces that are kind of around um, in the Defense Department, in the Pentagon, then, you know, they've been waiting for a moment like this. They've been waiting for a president like this. I mean, the Cold War was big money. It was really big money. Hmm. If you look at, like, Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and the amount of money that they get from these types of contracts, mm-hmm. even with Iraq, right? Iraq, you know, in our 2003 Iraq, Halliburton and all these military contractors, I mean, this is big money for them. Um, so both on the contractor kind of private side, as well as the government side, um, there are hawks who have been, you know, kind of their hands have been tied since the Cold War. They, they wanted that, right? And we had skirmishes all throughout the world because of it. And so now here's an opportunity where you have, you know, a president that's tough talk. He's kind of a hawk himself. And uh, he's the big guy on the block. He thinks that, you know, we can just do whatever we want because we have this vast military. So that's what you think his strategy is. Yeah, and that, that's probably true. If you're fighting another big state like China, like if, you know, I, God forbid that would ever happen. But if you're fighting another country uh, that moves the way you move, mm-hmm. like Russia or China or, mm-hmm. I don't know, something crazy like, you know, Canada... Uh, then, yeah, you could expect that that type of response to be appropriate. But Iran doesn't move that way. It never has. Um, the separation between, you know, Iran and Syria is not super clear. The separation between, you know, Lebanon and Syria is not super clear. Um, it's all mixed up. It's all intertwined. And um, the, as we saw with every time the United States ends up in, in a, a kind of military situation where they don't really understand how things work on the ground, we get tossed. So I think I'm hearing you say that perhaps he might have a strategy, but your your thought is that it, it is conventional warfare, which is a really bad yeah, strategy. I, I, yeah, I think that's a bad strategy for a country like this. Um, and that, so here, here's one question I, I think to ask that I think is an important one. Is it possible that the United States has an understanding that is maybe not clear to someone who's not part of the government, mm-hmm. like me? Mm-hmm. And what you see all the time, and, and I, I'm, I'm, while I'm willing to say, yes, that's possible, mm-hmm. I've also seen the United States make all these gaffes time and time and time again where they don't understand the rules. You know, no one expected the Chinese to help out in North Korea, you know, during the Korean War. And China threw lots of men at the problem. And it was like, oh, where, where all these people come from, they're not even Korean. Hmm. Well, well, you didn't understand the rules. Vietnam, you didn't understand the rules. The insurgency in Iraq, you didn't understand the rules. Mm-hmm. And this we see over and over and over again, is that if I'm a wooden, like, kind of soldier, and you have wooden soldiers, then... Everything is good. But if you're a slinky, I don't know what to do with you. Mm-hmm. That has been, you know, with however smart people were in the, the Bush administration, whoever the smart people were, you know, during Vietnam, it wasn't like you didn't have brilliant people at the top. But they're thinking from their own, like, kind of view of the world. Mm-hmm. And the things that are outside of that box, they're just invisible to them. Yeah. And they don't come home to bite them until it's like, oh, right, this is not moving the way that I thought it was going to move. Yeah, I, I like the way that you're 
breaking this down. I think it's easy to understand. I, I'm aware that we're running close to time. I'm wondering how you would like to leave this for people. You know, I, I guess the thing that, that really kind of, um, I mean, I think the rhetoric that bothered me the most was this idea that um, it was this idea of getting a, a chess piece off the board. Mm -hmm. And really the people who were defending the fact that this is someone who has uh, taken countless American lives and who threatened to take countless more American lives. And that in and of itself was a justification, um, a sufficient justification. And while it may be true that, you know, hundreds of Americans died uh, because of the machinations of this guy, and while it might be true that there might be imminent threats um, because of his machinations, uh, it, for me, is not sufficient with this type of enemy, uh, with this type of thinking. Uh, it's not sufficient to go in with this really essentially World War II mentality mm -hmm. and say, this is what we're going to do. And if so, you know, we're going to, you know, invade your beaches. Look, mm -hmm. this is the, the wrong way to think about it. Um, the wrong outcome could leave the United States embroiled in the region in all types of conflicts for, you know, decades to come. And we got to pay for that. As taxpayers, we have to pay for that. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, I, I don't know, was it like a trillion to $2.4 trillion that we're going to end up paying for the Iraq war? $2.4 trillion? That's like $6,000 per American or something like that. Yeah. So it's not even just, it, it's not even just like, oh, the region. It's, I mean, there are loads of Americans who are like, I'm never going to be in the region. But that doesn't mean it's not going to touch you. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we're paying for one war close to $3 trillion, trillion, you know what I mean? Trillion. If we're $2.4 trillion for the Iraq war, that's, that's going to affect how we go to college. That's going to affect how we bank. That's going to affect our mortgages. That's going to affect uh, Social Security. It's going to affect how we do health insurance. Like they're real yeah. monetary. I mean, like I hate to reduce it to like the monetary impact of, of taxpayers. Um, but that's just one war. Mm -hmm. And now the, the notion of paying for some other kind of conflict with... Iran that could possibly go on for decades, pay for that too? Your kids ain't going to college. Mm -hmm. Or like whatever, you're paying out of pocket, you know, just make sure you have all your, whatever kind of need you have for the government, whether it's social security or whatever, y'all better start saving. Get a second job, open a business, something. Yeah. Um, because, and you know, the 1% will be fine. They're going to be fine. But if you are an American who you don't include yourself in the 1%, mm -hmm. this will be a terrible tax it's burden. It's going to be hard, yeah. Right. Yeah, well, I guess the, uh, you know, the, maybe the charge is, you know, start, just start saving. Put some, start, put some money under your mattress. Start, start saving. That's, that's what I want y'all to do. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for breaking it down. I, I, I think it's a, it was a good, uh, yeah, it was a good breakdown to kind of consider what's going on here. Yeah, I feel like I, I just had to, at any rate. I appreciate that, yep. Yeah. Again, Happy New Year to everyone, and thanks for, for listening with us. And uh, Yeah, peace for 2020 and lots of money under your mattress. <laughs> That's right. See ya. See ya.